Because my wife and I have eight children in our home, we are constantly looking for the wisdom necessary to raise these kids. With a nearly 21-year-old and four teenagers underneath her and with three below them who are fast approaching both their tween and teen years, we need all the wisdom that we can get. And I guess what I'm looking for is a wise old sage. And I believe we have found that very sage in Solomon, the wisest sinful human being who has ever lived. And he has, along with a few others, authored what we know as the book of Proverbs. And part of the wisdom I'm desperately looking for can be found in the life lessons of Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs 20. If you'll turn there, I'd like to continue to do what we have done through at least the last couple of messages, and that is to see if we can get through an entire chapter in one evening. These are life lessons from a wise old sage, and in Proverbs chapter 20, we have tremendous life lessons for all of us. I see 23 of them, 23 life lessons which come to us from Proverbs chapter 20. Here is the first one. Number one, life lesson number one, don't drink yourself drunk. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Of course, in that time, a drinking fermented juice like the grape juice of that time, even if it were, of course, to be diluted heavily with water, and often I'm sure it was, they nevertheless had problems, probably not like we have, although to some degree that might be true, with alcoholism. Strong drink is also mentioned here. And notice what Solomon says. He speaks of it as though wine itself is a mocker. That's what he says. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Now, why would you want to drink at all if this is what wine and strong drink are defined as being? You ought to be able, at least with the drinks that we have available to us today, to avoid such things because... When do you know that you're leading up to the point of intoxication? Why would you ever want to drink in the first place if, in fact, this warning tells us that you could get there and possibly even get there very quickly? The use, of course, or misuse of alcohol has been the bane of multitudes of souls. You know, we talk a lot about drugs. and We talk a lot about those things which are harming and hindering multitudes of people, but we don't often include alcohol as a part of people's drug use. But Solomon does, and he says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, whoever is intoxicated by it or them is not wise. That's a 
wonderful life lesson to begin. Number two, life lesson number two, be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Verse two, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. Do you remember when we read last time in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 12? It says this, The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion. Very similar to what I just read. But his favor is like dew on the grass. Similar to this particular proverb, although that proverb give, gives both sides of the disposition of a king. This only gives one. We're simply told that you provoke a king to anger, or a governmental official we might say, someone in charge, and you will be in deep trouble. It might even be saying, this proverb, that you will forfeit your freedom in this life, because it says he forfeits his own life who provokes a king to anger. Or it may even be including not just something like incarceration, but maybe even the forfeiture of your own life itself. It's as if Solomon is saying to his children, and my saying to mine, why not be a good citizen and never test the king's rules? Just be on the safe side. That's what Solomon would say. Number three, life lesson number three, stay away from quarreling. That's a great life lesson for us to have. Stay away from quarreling. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. This is tremendously sage advice. It's so simple, but oh, so hard to avoid. If you were to work as hard as you could to stay away from the strife that inevitably stems from quarreling, you would be, Solomon says, an honored man. An honored man. And yet it's so difficult to stay away from striving, isn't it, children? So hard. So hard not to nitpick. So hard not to criticize. So hard not to argue. So hard not to quarrel. If you quarrel, strife inevitably follows. And Solomon says this stems from the heart of a person who does such a thing as a pattern in his life. And who is it? None other than the fool. We've seen him many times. That's an unbeliever, a non-Christian. Any fool who doesn't abide by this proverb as a pattern in his life will easily quarrel because they're not consciously seeking to avoid that strife. They're seeking to provoke it. You stay away from quarreling and you'll avoid constant strife. Life lesson number four. Work hard now so you can eat later. Work hard now so you can eat later. Look at Proverbs 20 verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. And then look also at Proverbs 20 verse 13. Do not love sleep or you will become poor. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with food. Let's take the last one first. When it says, do not love sleep, we can understand that well enough. 
You will become poor. That's a sluggard. That's a lazy person. But what does he mean here by opening your eyes and you will be satisfied with food? Well, it's not talking about anything other than when you're in the morning ready to get up, open your eyes, get up, stand up, and go to work. That's what he means. If you love sleep, you're going to have the temptation not to want to open your eyes. And we've all had that experience. We ourselves have had them. Our children have had them. Have you ever had the opportunity to go and wake up your children and you, you wake them up and then you go away and do something and then you come back and what are they doing? They're continuing to sleep. And then you might give them a little bit of a nudge, maybe a little bit of a tickle, maybe an opportunity to remind them about their responsibilities. You go away and continue your opportunities and you come back and what might they be doing still? Well, here are some great proverbs for them. Maybe you would quote that to them right there. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Tell them, just like Paul says in Second in Second Thessalonians, if a man does not work, let him not eat. You don't want someone reduced to begging. And that's what Solomon says here. You don't plow after the autumn, you're not going to realize the harvest. There's going to be a time come, that harvest is here, and you'll have nothing. If you're lazy and you just want to sleep the day away, you'll become like the poor without any resources. But if you wake up and get out and work hard for a living, you'll be able to have a regular, sustained, satisfying job. You'll be able to have food for your family. It's a great life lesson. Work hard now so you can eat later. Number five, life lesson five. Counseling others requires great understanding. Counseling others requires great understanding. Look at verse five. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water. But a man of understanding draws it out. This is a great verse and we use it in the context of biblical counseling because it's telling us, of course, that the plans of a man's heart are very deep, very mysterious. There's a lot going on underneath the surface. But a man of understanding, a man who understands the Scripture a man who wants to help others can draw out the deep, mysterious things of another man's heart. Of course, now we know that only the Lord's Word, the Scripture, which is perfect, of course, is the only thing that can ultimately draw it out. But if you know the Scripture, if you're working with the Scripture, you can, if someone is willing, draw out the deep recesses of the motives of their soul. That's what Solomon's talking about here. Bringing out the motives, bringing them to the surface so that they can be examined. Oh, to have a friend like that. To be able to draw upon someone's wisdom, to be able to ask you the kinds of questions that you need in order to find out why you do what you do. A man of understanding brings out, draws out from the Scripture the motives of the heart. Counseling others demands this great understanding. It demands your 
optimum opportunity to know and understand God's Word and to be able to draw out the heart of a person. Number six, life lesson six, loyalty is the best part of friendship. Loyalty is the best part of friendship. Verse six, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? There are multitudes of people who would profess to you that they're loyal to you. But in the end, how many truly loyal men and women are there out there? That's the question that Solomon is posing. Who can find a truly trustworthy person? I think he's suggesting that true loyalty is very elusive. Very elusive. There are many who proclaim it, but only a few who possess trustworthiness. Or we might even say because of the word that Solomon uses here, that word for faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, hesed. Who can find hesed? Who can find loyalty? Who can find faithfulness? And as I said, I believe that loyalty is the best part of friendship because when the difficulties come, can I really trust the person who says they're loyal to me? Can I really trust them? When I have that trust, that loyalty, I have the absolute best part of friendship because I know the person is going to stand with me no matter what. No greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Loyalty. It's the best part of friendship. Number seven. Life lesson seven. Integrity is a gift that keeps on giving. Integrity is a gift that keeps on giving. Verse 7, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. You know how I principalized that. Integrity is not good just for your own life, but it's going to bleed over into the relationships of your sons, your family, and others. It's the gift that keeps on giving. He says, if you have your integrity, if you walk in it, how blessed are your sons after you. That's what we would call modeling. Being an example, being a great discipler. The Lord will honor the life and even the memory of a man of God who walks in his integrity. Integrity is wholeness. Every aspect of your life is bent on walking with God. It characterizes a man who has every area of his life under the control of the Holy Spirit. People will rejoice when they notice the consistency of your life, especially your family. Integrity is that gift that keeps on giving long after you're gone. Number eight, life lesson number eight, righteousness, righteous government curb evil. Righteous governments curb evil evil. Look at verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of justice disperses all evil with his eyes. And then look at verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the threshing wheel over them. And then verse 28. 
Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. As I said earlier, king or a governmental leader like a governor or someone who's in charge, some political person, a judge, any of those contexts would do when, when they're righteous, when they're sitting on a righteous throne, when they're desiring to treat people with justice, they'll be able to adjudicate matters with skill and alacrity. The word for disperses in verse 8 could be tied to the process of sifting or winnowing the chaff from the wheat. And it's talking about a king who is able with discernment to determine the truth of a matter. He's able to uh, sift the falsity from the truth. The falsity is like the chaff. It blows away and it gets down to the wheat of truth, the kernel of truth. It says basically the same thing in verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked. He He sifts down, determining who the wicked really are, and then he drives the threshing wheel over them. He judges them, brings a verdict, hands down his adjudication. And then, of course, from the positive side, verse 28, loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. That's the positive A righteous judge is able to discern between someone who is good or evil, and the evil man will be driven over with the wheels of justice. Righteousness. Righteous governments are given to us by God to curb evil. It's not saying that that's what always is going to happen. It's giving us a proverbial truth. Axiomatically, in usual cases, this is what happens. Righteous governments... Deal with evil doers. That's what Romans 13 says. Number nine, life lesson nine. Affirm the fact that we are all sinners. Affirm the fact that we are all sinners. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Can you hear Solomon telling his young sons that very thing? Men, watch out for the person who assumes themselves to be sinless. Save the Lord Jesus, of course. We must all acknowledge that we're sinners in need of a Savior. No one can say that, we're, that they are exempt from the category called sinners. No one at all. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'll tell you one of the greatest life lessons we have is to humbly admit who we are in light of who God is. Great life lesson. Number 10, very practical, don't cheat others. Don't cheat others. Verse 10, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. Verse 23, differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. Essentially saying similar things, a bit different. And then look also at verse 14, bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes his way, he boasts. And then verse 17, 
Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. These are all talking about cheating someone else. It's talking about the fact that if you're bending the rules, creating ethical breaches between yourself and others, the Lord's going to reveal it. For instance, usually in that day, someone would take uh, the weight machine, the scale, and because they obviously wanted more profit, they would weight the scale on their side, or they would take it away from your side, and they would try to swindle you. They would try to cheat you. And what does Solomon say? It's an abomination to the Lord. False scale's not good. Don't cheat others, he's saying. Or, how about it from the buyer's perspective? Back with verse 14. Bad, bad, says the buyer. The picture here is, maybe you're in the marketplace and you're trying to sell your goods. If you've ever been in Israel or a place in the Middle East like it, you know that these marketplaces are set up. Everybody's just standing around. Tourists come by. It's like someone bartering with one of these sellers and the buyer stands up and says, bad, bad, too high a price. And they start to argue with you and they start to barter with you and maybe they get a little louder and maybe you don't want all the commotion. And so maybe as a seller you say, all right, all right, how about this price? How about this price? How about this price? And then when he goes away, he essentially says in his boasting, I got him. I got him. The Lord says that's cheating. Don't cheat. Stealing. It's a form of cheating and it's forbidden. That's why verse 17 says what it says. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, that is, at least initially, but afterward his mouth is filled with gravel. Presumably he's been caught. Sounded good, tasted good. May not even be literal bread there, but maybe some kind of business deal. You think you got away with it. You think it was sweet. And afterwards, your mouth is full of gravel. What a graphic picture. Don't cheat, Solomon says to his sons, under any circumstances, whether you're a buyer or a seller. Look at Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 1. A false balance... There it is again, is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Fairness, equity, and you're buying and selling to others. Chapter 16, verse 11. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His Concern. Don't assume for one moment that it's just a little deal and it really doesn't matter. All the weights in the bag are his concern. What a great life lesson. Number 11. Life lesson number 11. A young man's righteous deeds will reward him. A young man's righteous deeds will reward him. Verse 11. It is by his deeds that a lad distinguishes himself if his conduct is pure and right. Now this is a bit of a difficult proverb to interpret. Because if you have an NASB Bible, and if it is to be understood in that way, it would be a marvelous proverb which speaks to the 
pattern of the conduct and behavior in a young man's life and how those patterns will reward him in later years. You can distinguish between a young man who does or does not establish righteous thinking or righteous actions by who he becomes when he gets older because he's setting those patterns early in his life. If he's righteous in later years, it's usually tied to the patterns he established when he was young. If he's not righteous, it will usually be tied to the lack of the pure and right conduct from his youth. That may be what this proverb says, like the NASB. But if you translate it the way the ESV does, which may be more precise in this case than the NASB, the proverb states it this way, even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. So he uses even that concept of even a child. If this is the right translation, it would mean that a person is known or characterized by their actions, including even a child or a young man. It would even be suggesting that anybody's actions can be determined by the habits or patterns of their life. Even a child can be known in that way. There's an interesting alternate translation in the ESV, by the way. It says, even a child can disassemble in his actions, though his conduct seems pure and upright. What does that mean? Well, it would have the sense that even a young person can feign what appear to be pure and upright deeds, but things are not always as they appear. In other words, the latter part of the proverb is suggesting that they seem to be pure, they seem to be upright, but they feign it because they really aren't who they are professing to be. Regardless, however, the principle is this. Start in your youth with the right habits and the right conduct, because when you are old, those habits will be with you for a long, long time. Very, very hard to break old habits, especially the habits you start as a young person. Number 12, life lesson number 12. This is really good. Use what God gives you to obey Him. Use what God gives you to obey Him. Verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye. The Lord has made both of them. Now, at first, you might just assume that this proverb is talking about God as Creator. He's created the ear to listen, the eye to see, The Lord has made both of them, but if you trace out through the Proverbs and elsewhere in our Old Testament, of course the concept of seeing and hearing can be spoken of from the spiritual perspective, right? It's not just what God has created physically for which we can move around in our world with our senses. If Solomon is talking from a spiritual perspective, he's saying, look, if you have an ear, hear the truth. If you have an eye, see the truth. The Lord has made both of them. Understand that it is He who has given you the spiritual wherewithal to obey Him. Use what God gives you to obey. Don't prostitute the use of what God has created for you to honor Him. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15 says it this way. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. There's the concept of eyes. 
But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. There are the ears. Use what God has given you. God has created for you the opportunity to praise Him, to honor Him, to obey Him. He has not created any other thing except human beings to do that. So honor Him with your obedience in what He has created for you. Number 13. Life lesson 13. Biblical speech is more desirable than precious wealth. Biblical speech is more desirable than precious wealth. Verse 15 says, There is gold and an abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. Solomon loves these comparatives. Compare riches, compare knowledge to those riches, and what do you find? And he says over and over and over again, we've seen it many, many times through the years as we've studied these Proverbs, Solomon is saying there are riches out there and people love them and people want them and people pursue them, but comparatively speaking, there is nothing more to be pursued than the riches of wisdom and knowledge. That's what he's saying. The lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. They are to be desired far more than the world's best goods. Oh, that is such a great life lesson. Biblical speech is far more desirable than precious wealth. Oh, if we learn that lesson. Number 14. Life lesson 14. Don't promise to repay a stranger's loans. Don't promise to repay a stranger's loans. Verse 16. Listen carefully now. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners hold him in pledge. You have to think about this one because this is not necessarily how we operate today. What is he talking about? Well, in order to understand this proverb, you must understand that there are three people involved in this proverb. Number one, a person who loans someone money the person loaning money. Secondly, the person desiring the money, the person desiring the loan. And then thirdly, the person who promises to repay the loan if the person borrowing the money defaults. These are the three people involved here. And Solomon is warning us not to loan someone money that you do not know, a stranger. He says, if you in fact don't know this person then you really can't know whether or not they're trustworthy and whether or not they're going to faithfully pay the loan back. And if you don't know that, and yet you're the guarantor, I guarantee that I will pay this this loan back if this person defaults. Solomon says, don't do that. Why? Because if the person defaults in the loan, the person who loans them the money, they're not going to get it back from them. And so they're going to come to the guarantor, and if they come to the guarantor, and you don't really know the person who's been loaned the money, and they're a stranger, or they're a foreigner, he says, then that person who's loaned the money says, pay up. And if you don't pay up, then you're liable. But if you don't want to pay up, then the person who's loaning the money doesn't have it from either party. So what does Solomon say? Take the garment of the guarantor. At least get something out of it. 
to take his garment when he becomes surety or a guarantor for a stranger. And for foreigners, hold him in pledge. If you can't get anything, at least when you loan the money, at least take the guy's jacket. And if the person who doesn't, who's borrowed the money, pay it back, you can't get anything out of him, get it out of the guarantor. And if you can't get any money, at least take his jacket. It's interesting. I think the, the point is well made. Don't, don't promise to repay money for someone you don't know, a stranger, a foreigner, someone outside the camp of Israel. You're only going to bring problems and trouble on your own finances. Life lesson 15. This is a great one. Get as much godly counsel as you can before you make important decisions. Well, these are just so practical, so helpful for young men and women to know and for all of us to know. Get as much godly counsel as you can before you make important decisions. Look at verse 18. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. Doesn't that sound, that last part of the proverb, a lot like Jesus who said, doesn't a man, if he's going to go to war with his thousands up against somebody with greater thousands, count the cost? Sure he does. No one goes to war without counting the cost. Solomon says the same thing. Make war by wise guidance. Look at chapter 11 of Proverbs, verse 14. Proverbs eleven fourteen. Where there is no guidance... The people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Want to have a victory? Surround yourself with a multitude of counselors. Chapter 15, verse 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. And chapter 24, verse 6. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Get as much godly counsel as you possibly can before making important decisions. Certainly, as the examples are given here, the very, very important decisions about whether or not you go to war. Any important decision demands getting as much godly counsel as possible. Number 16, avoid the company of slandering gossips. Avoid the company of slandering gossips. Verse 19, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. Could it be any clearer than that? Stay away from gossips. Avoid the company of slanderers. A slanderer is one who's seeking some kind of verbal advantage over you. They just want to one-up by way of slander. And a gossip is a person who, who opens wide their mouth, where there's a lot of space there for words to come out. That's what Solomon means by gossip. We have to avoid that at all costs. Again, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13. 
He who goes about as a talebearer, it's a gossip, reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Chapter 13, verse 3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips, like that gossip, comes to ruin. Such wisdom in these Proverbs. Chapter 26, verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Stay away from the slanderer, stay away from the gossip, and contention will quiet down. What a great life lesson. Number 17, a contemptible child will be punished. A contemptible child will be punished. Look at verse 20 and verse 21. He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. And then the next proverb, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. This is, this is not just a, a son who's using foul language toward his parents. This is a son, by the very language that Solomon uses, is talking about contempt. Contempt for his parents. Doing harm to them. And Solomon warns his sons by saying, look, if you do this, the lamp will go out in the time of darkness in your life. The lamp really is talking about the life of a person. The lamp is the, the life. And the life, he says, will be put out or it will go out in time of darkness, in the darkness of night, in the middle of the night, in the time of the greatest level of darkness, your lamp will be snuffed out. That's really saying what Deuteronomy says and what other passages say about someone who violates Exodus 20, honor your father, father and mother, it says you will be cursed. That means that you will die. In the Old Testament economy, you cursed your mother and father, you had contempt for them, you treated them in a contemptible way, and you lost your life. Proverbs chapter 30 says it this way. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 11. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. Verse 17. The eye that mocks a father. Remember what we said about the eye? The spiritual eye. The one who is spiritually disobedient. The, the, the son that mocks a father and scorns a mother. Listen to this graphic Conclusion, the ravens of the valley will pick out that eye and the young eagles will eat it. Graphically talking about judgment. A contemptible child will be punished. Work with your children now. Work with your grandchildren now so that they will not be raised up to be called a contemptible child. Number 18, life lesson 18, don't take revenge into your own hands. Verse 22, do not say, and this will have the echo of Romans 12, won't it? Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. 
and He will save you. He'll deliver you from this evil perpetrator. Don't say, I will repay evil. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. That's what Romans 12 talks about. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Don't take revenge. Don't be a spiritual vigilante going after people who have harmed you, hurt you, wounded you. Don't say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He'll save you. He'll deal with those who have harmed you. He'll deal with them in His way. Don't take revenge into your own hands. How that might be a life lesson so very applicable to so many. So many caught up in bitterness and anger who just want to lash out at those who have hurt them and wounded them. I've counseled such persons and they're just seething with bitterness and revenge in their hearts. And yet the simple proverb, not necessarily simple always in its obedience, but simple at least in its principle, don't say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. Life lesson number 19. Number 19. It is futile to assume we can know as God knows. Look at verse 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? There is a marvelous text in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10, which essentially says the very same thing. Listen to it. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. Jeremiah is saying essentially the same thing that Solomon is saying, and that is man simply cannot know what God knows because God is infinite. God has infinite knowledge. And it is futile to assume that we can know as God Himself knows since we are finite creatures. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 regarding this. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Of course, the reason why the Lord directs his steps is because the Lord knows in an infinite way far beyond ourselves. It is futile to assume we can know as God knows. That's why one of the most famous couple of verses in the book of Proverbs says this, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. You probably memorized this as a child if you grew up in the church. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Why should we not lean on our own understanding? Why should we trust in the Lord with all our heart and acknowledge Him in all our ways? Because He is the only one who knows how to direct our steps, how to make our paths straight, because He has 
infinite knowledge. Solomon is saying, simply put, it is futile to assume we can know as God Himself knows. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand His way? He cannot, and so we must rely on God and His wisdom. Life lesson number 20. Number 20. Verse 25 of Proverbs chapter 20. Don't make rash commitments without first thinking them through. Don't make rash commitments without first thinking them through. Here's the proverb. It is a trap for a man to say rashly, it is holy, and after the vows to make inquiry. What a huge life lesson this is. This, like Jephthah's vow, is someone who would make a rash commitment and without forethought does so, especially a religious commitment seen here in the words, it is holy, and then only after taking that vow starts asking questions about the cost of that commitment. That's foolish. Don't make rash commitments without first thinking them through. You can get yourself in all kinds of trouble by doing so. Think through things, Solomon says, before you commit to something, especially something where you have said yes or no to God Himself. Don't rashly say, I'm going to commit to this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to respond in this way, I'm going to take on this commitment, and when you do, you have not thought it through sufficiently, and it's a rash commitment. It's like Solomon says here, it is holy. That means I'm going to commit to God in this way. And when you do, you've made a rash commitment. Don't do that, he says. Think it through. Do what you can to make sure that you are thinking your commitments down to a very, very critical level before you say yes or no. Life lesson number 21. Number 21. It is the Lord who searches the deepest recesses of the human heart. It is the Lord who searches the deepest recesses of the human heart. Verse 27. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Now I recognize that that sounds a lot like verse 24 about God understanding or ordaining man's steps. But here it's a little bit different. And while some think this is referring to the conscience of a person, the spirit of man, I think it probably has more of a reference to the spirit of a man or the breath of a man. Literally, that's what the word is, like Genesis 2-7, that God breathed into man the breath of life. And I think this is referring to the deepest part of man's thoughts and his motives and how it is that only the Lord has the capacity to search and to know all the innermost parts of a man's being. So in that sense, it's like verse 24, but it goes beyond that. The spirit of a man, the breath of a man, uh, how man thinks, who he is, is up to the Lord's own searching. 
Rather than a commentary on man like verse 24, this is a proverb about the power of the searching capabilities of our God. He knows us thoroughly. He knows what we're thinking. The Lord takes the searchlight of His Word and with that searchlight, He looks into the lamp of our life. Lamp, of course, being a metonymy for the spirit of a man. And he shines that lamp, that searchlight of his word into the deepest recesses of our souls in order to expose what's there. That is, our thoughts and our attitudes. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? And then this, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And so, while it does say that man is only known by the Spirit of that man, the Spirit which is in him, yet the Spirit of God being infinite, being eternal, being all-wise, that Spirit of God can look into the spirit of man and to discern the innermost recesses of his being. Only God can do that. You remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? It's amazing what the Word of God, the Spirit of God can do through the Word of God to take our own thoughts and open up our own minds to the things that we think we know well, but we really don't know at all when compared to the Spirit of God and what He does to search us. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only the Word of God can do that. The Spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. The Lord looks into our lamp as it were through His searchlight of the Word of God, His very Word, and only He can see into the innermost parts of our being. So what we must do then is to submit to the searchlight of God's truth and live in light of the fact that our God knows all things and we must live before His gaze. So, like verse 24, it is futile to assume we can know as only God Himself knows And verse 27, only God is the great searcher of the innermost parts of man's being. Number 22, life lesson 22. Be smart about where you are in life. Be smart about where you are in life. Verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Now this is fascinating. Solomon is saying young men, because they haven't lived enough years in order to be as wise as older men, usually rely upon their strength and their brawn. And likewise, when men get older, they cease relying upon their strength and they begin to draw upon their wisdom because of the amount of years that has accrued. The trouble is when these roles are reversed. For instance, a young man may think himself wise 
and you've seen them, yet does not have the requisite experience and wisdom to act accordingly. He doesn't have the gray hair of age and wisdom. And another example, of course, from the other side of the spectrum, an older man, and you've seen them too, often will attempt to relive his youth, or he may think he still has the grit and the brawn and and the determination to tangle, maybe even with younger men half their age. They've lost their own youthful strength, but they sometimes can proudly assume that they're still the same man as they were when they were young, but it isn't true. You see, what both young and old alike need to realize is that they can best function only when they understand their station in life accordingly. So be smart about where you are in life. If, for instance, you're a young man, use your strength, but use it wisely. If you're an older man, use your wisdom, but use it energetically. Finally, life lesson number 23. Number 23. Accept the discipline of the Lord. Accept the discipline of the Lord of the Lord. Boy, this is a great place to end these 23 life lessons. Look at verse 30 of Proverbs chapter 20. Stripes that wound scour away evil and strokes reach the innermost parts. What a wonderful way, as I said, to end all of these various life lessons. Although this is referring, I think, to a young person who receives the rod, the rod of reproof from his parents, so that he may learn all of these life lessons, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, for instance, in Hebrews 12, that everyone who is a child of God receives the stripes of discipline. Listen to it. Hebrews 12:5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. The writer to Hebrews goes on to say, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then notice this, verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father, capital F, the Father of spirits, and live? For they, that is earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, God, God the Father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, verse 11 says, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. You see, the writer to Hebrews is saying the same thing Solomon has said here in Proverbs 20. Stripes that wound us have a purpose. Solomon says that it effectively scours. Did you notice that word? Scours away evil. 
The evil clings to us, and like a, a good scrub, you must scour away that evil. And it hurts, and it takes pain to do it. And he also speaks of strokes here, or whippings, that God brings us that reach the inner core of our being. They're the only things that are effective enough to reach us. The writer to Hebrews says, All discipline seems for the moment not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But afterwards, when the stripes and the strokes have done their proper work, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let me ask you as we conclude, where are you in all of these lessons of life? If you are a person who has heard these tonight, you have read them, you've thought about them, and you reject them, then the lessons of life like these from Solomon to his sons will come at you with more force in the days ahead. But if you receive them, if you accept the discipline of the Lord, you will receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Life lessons. We can't do without them. And of course, nobody can live in the way that Solomon outlines in this chapter unless they know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray to Him now. Father, there are a multitude of these life lessons in this chapter. 23 by my count. And Father, there is absolutely no way that we can live these out in the power of our own strength. These are life lessons that require repentance and faith. This is not just a moral boost for our life and living. This is a radical transformation that requires the Spirit of God and it requires our turning and placing our faith in Christ and Christ alone so that by His Spirit we can live and learn these life lessons. Oh, may we learn these from a wise old sage. Not simply that we can be better parents and not simply because we can be better in our society, but because, Father, we want to be true Christians, growing Christians who have repented and turned from our sin, embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and who are desirous of living out every one of these 23 life lessons by the power of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for the glory of Your name, Father. May we indeed know You and live out these truths before You Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't truly know You. 
and who themselves may have been very frustrated because of the multitudes of ways that through your spirit they have been caught up short. Lord, I pray that they would repent and turn to you and by faith trust in your Son so that they could live these life lessons with joy and not with grief. Work in their hearts. And Father, for those who are genuine believers, I pray that you would take us and mold and shape us into the very image of Christ in whom is the embodiment of all of these things that you call us to do and to be because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. May we live for Him and in so doing live out these life lessons for your praise in His name. Amen.